0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Revelation chapter 4. Last week we uh, finished the letters to the churches. And uh, now we move into the next chapter. And, uh, and I'm going to read you a chunk of it. We will get through all the main stuff in this chapter. Uh, and I'll read you a few verses uh, now. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 says this, after this I looked. So after he has finished getting this vision, uh, these, these, where he writes these letters to the churches, now he has another vision. So after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So that's Jesus speaking to him, right? The first voice that he heard speaking to him was the voice that spoke those letters. We saw it in Revelation chapter 1 to 3. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God." I'm just going to skip ahead of you verses now to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, I just, I love that picture of the casting of the crowns. Jesus, who gave them those crowns? Jesus just gave them those crowns as reward for living for him and being faithful to him in this life. And so Jesus—it's this wonderful picture of this give and take that is part of being in love and being in relationship with God. He gives, and then we take, it and go, "Oh no, no, you're worthy!" And then we give it back, and then He gives, and then we give it back. That's that's the Christian life there—the joyful Christian life in a nutshell. And so they give Him back their crowns, and saying, "Worthy are You, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things." And by your will, they existed and were created. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's give honor to this God depicted in this Revelation chapter 4. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we just come to you, and this throne scene we see here is real. You are on your throne right now. And I just pray by your Holy Spirit, you would change our perspective of the world today as we dwell on your throne and who you are. In your precious, powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. After this, I looked. After this, I looked. Verse 1, after this, I looked. Now, I, I don't have a, a lot of time to dig into this uh, too deeply, um, but I just want to clear up something. There is a strain of thought, and some of you who, uh, you know, read, you know, end time books in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of popular authors at the time, maybe even into the 90s a little bit who were writing all these very popular end times books, and, uh, and at, in most of those cases, I think those authors really loved Jesus. Some of them had TV shows even, and uh, kind of, in some cases, became kind of Christian household names. And, uh, and again, like I said, most of them loved Jesus, and, and most of what they taught, I think, was certainly okay. But they, they had an interpretation of Revelation that really messes with the book. And what a lot of them did was they said those seven letters to the churches in Asia, they're not just letters to seven specific churches, they actually represent seven ages in church history. I don't know if any of you has ever heard that before. Uh, It is exegetically, that just means biblical interpretation, it is exegetically very, very weak. And almost no scholars today accept it because it's completely made up. It's not in the passage. Again, I'm not saying that these guys are bad guys or that they're false teachers. It won't lead you astray from Jesus or anything like that. However, it does really mess with the book. So they interpret the the seven churches as seven ages in church history. So the first letter, Ephesus, that was the first stage in church history. And then Smyrna is the next stage. And then Laodicea is the last stage in church history. And then what they do is they look around the world today, and they look around, well, they don't look around the world, they look around North America today, and they look at it and they see a nor- uh, uh, many churches that are lukewarm, and they say, see, we're living in the church age of Laodicea. We're right in the end times. This is the last church age, and then Jesus comes back. Okay? Now, there are many, many reasons. We could fill a lot of pages with reasons why that is not a good interpretation, aside from the fact that it isn't in the Bible, or that Jesus doesn't say that. But the most important reason is just, How on earth could one church represent all churches around the globe? How on earth? Even if you look around Canada and the U.S., and let's just grant them that and say, hey, all the churches in Canada and the U.S. are represented by the Laodicean church, that certainly doesn't mean the churches in China are represented by the Laodicean church. Certainly doesn't mean that the churches in Africa are represented by the Laodicean church or the church in, North, in Latin America or the church anywhere because the fact of the matter is the global church is far too big and complex to be represented by one church. So they do not represent seven stages in church history. They literally are what they are, which was letters to specific churches at the time. And of course... Uh, we can learn from those letters because there's pieces of those churches that apply to churches all around the world at all times. Isn't that true? But the reason I bring it up in this chapter 4 is because if you take the seven letters to be stages in church history as time moves along, and now we're in the Laodicean age at the end, then when you read after this at the beginning of chapter 4, it looks like you're chronologically following along, and that is not the point of chapter 4. It makes chapter 4 look like, and after the Laodicean age is over, now something else happens. So it makes chapter 4 look like it's in the future, which completely ruins the whole point of chapters 4 and 5, which are supposed to be an encouragement to believers now and have supposed to have been an encouragement to believers from the first moment when they got the letters almost 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? So John sees this vision of the, and this is, you know, some of this kind of interpretation is why people have thought Revelation doesn't apply to Christians, is because they think it's all about the future. But Revelation, and there is, there are future, there certainly, there is end time prophecy in the book of Revelation, I'm not denying that, but... In all that Revelation is doing, it is meant to encourage us now and all Christians living throughout history were meant to be encouraged in their now, in their time period. Does that make sense? And so Revelation 4, as we're reading this, we have this vision of God's throne. So let's look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Okay? That's not something in the future. I mean, it is in the future too, but it's now. God, is God on his throne now? He's on his throne now. And that's actually the whole big point of Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, which we'll get to next week, is these are chapters are supposed to encourage Christians who are under immense pressure who look around and all they see all around them is evil, evil, evil. And sometimes it looks like we're this big and here we are so puny and the whole world is covered by these global forces of evil. Revelation 4 says, yes, that's true. Evil is bigger than you, but it opens a door through the evil. And above the evil, we see God's throne, which is even bigger. And it's supposed to give us Revelation 4 and 5, which we'll get to next week. But Revelation 4 is supposed to give us encouragement. Revelation 4 isn't moving on from chapters 2 and 3. It is directly tied to chapters 2 and 3. By seeing God's throne, we're supposed to be encouraged and literally encouraged. Courage is a big part of that. Given courage to carry out what we've been commanded by Jesus to do in the letters to the churches. Now, of course, we spent the last few weeks going through the specifics of those letters to the churches, and each one is different because each church is different. And that's why even I, I reject, even on the North American level, I reject the fact that all churches in North America can be represented by the Laodicean church. There might be many lukewarm churches here in North America, but there are also lots of churches that love Jesus. And there's churches that struggle with things that aren't just in the Laodicean church, that struggle with stuff that we see in Ephesus and that we start to see in the other letters to the churches. There is no one church at any time that ever can represent a whole body of churches in a country or around the world. And so each of those letters to the churches had specific instructions to each of the different churches. But you say, is there an overarching theme? Is there any kind of consistent call that is the same throughout all seven letters? And there is. And it is that calling to which Revelation 4 is meant to give us courage, to encourage us, And I'll I'll just show show it to you. There is, like I said, each of the letters is very different because each of the churches is very different. But there is one call that remains the same throughout all seven. And it is this. You always find it at the end. And I'll show it to you in the letter to the church at Ephesus. In the last verse of the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. Now, the word conquer there is the Greek word nikayo. It literally means overcome. To the one who, nikaio, to the one who overcomes, I will grant you the tree of life. Now, this is very interesting. Notice he does not say, to the one who just attends church all his life. To the one who has some nice beliefs in his head, that's not what he says. I mean, it's important to believe. It's important to gather with the believers. Other scriptures talk to us about that. But it's not what Jesus says he's rewarding. He says, to the one who, nikayo, to the one who overcomes. In other words, the Christian life is going to be a struggle. Jesus nowhere in the scripture promises us a life that is free from pressure or persecution. In fact, quite the opposite. And in these letters, he says over and over again, the reward is not to the one who just attends church and just makes it through and has an easy life. No, no, the reward is to him who who overcomes. There's a struggle, evil is coming against you, and you're gonna be tired, and you're gonna wanna quit, and you're gonna have times and you're gonna wanna compromise, but the one who is rewarded at the end is the one who stands strong through intense personal and corporate suffering and overcomes, overcomes to the end. There's this sense of getting to the end of the struggle Without giving up. The Christian call is a difficult call, not a call to just believe something in your head. The believing is important, but it's only part of overcoming, it's the first part of overcoming. And Jesus makes this even more clear, and I could show this to you in each of the seven letters. Let me just show you what Jesus makes it super clear, and we talked about this verse a few weeks ago, but Revelation 2.10, the very next letter is the letter to the church of Smyrna, because he says the O part in every one of the letters, but in the letter to the church of Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death, and then I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. That that is not an easy calling. You know, Jesus Jesus doesn't say... um, I mean, there's a real sense, that, I mean, I really think this is actually planted in each human heart, some in more maybe than others, but there's, I think there's a desire in each of us to overcome something. You know, I think, I mean, look at all the movies and the books we, we read. Do we read books about people who just had a normal, easy life and didn't do anything? We just read the story. So what was that one about? Oh, just this guy who lived. Must have been a very fascinating book. So what did he do? Like he got up and went to work every day and just kind of lived his life and he was a Christian. Oh yeah, that sounds fascinating. Can I borrow that book from you when you're done? I do to read books like that. Not that there's anything wrong with living a normal life. Not at all. I mean, we can't, we're not going to go out and try to get ourselves in trouble or into, you know, all kinds of challenges that we don't need to have. But what are the stories that inspire us, whether to watch them or whether to read them? It's the stories where people are put in situations where it would be easy to give up or easy to turn around or easy to compromise. And then these people, instead of doing the easy thing, stand strong, even if they don't feel strong, and they somehow make it through to the other end. And we go, now that was a story. That basically encapsulates every good story, every book we've ever read or watched. And we never get tired of it. I mean, every once in a while, you know, Hollywood goes through these things where they try to make whatever artsy movies. Not that there's anything wrong with being artsy, <laughs> but they make these movies. They try to get away from that storyline, and you know what? I just don't like them. Maybe maybe some of you do, and that's fine. That's great. Nothing against you. I really shouldn't have gone there, um, but <laughs> I'm just saying, there's something common to the human experience. We want to see people nikiyo. We want to see people overcome. And I mean, this is a little bit off topic. I just, I, I just want to jump on Hebrews 12 for a moment because I felt this was a passage for us because I feel like sometimes people feel alone in their struggle, whatever it is. It could be, it could be they feel alone at work and the pressures of evil are just so much and just, or it could be uh, uh, personal health or it could be family pressures, but it just feels like, like bad is winning and you can't keep going. And Hebrews 12 says this, there's something in us that cries out, to experience and see people stay strong in circumstances like that. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says this Therefore, since, and I underline that word since, it means because. He's gonna give us a reason why we should endure to the end. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What is that cloud of witnesses he's talking about? He's talking about the saints through the centuries Old Testament, New Testament, and since. You think in the midst of your struggles, you're all by yourself? You think you're the first person ever to struggle with what you're struggling with? Do you think you're the first person who ever has had pressure on them at work to compromise or in their family to compromise or who's ever suffered physical pain? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, there is a chain of God's people going back even into the Old Testament and before. People who have followed God through the most difficult trying, sometimes not just for months, but for years and years on end. And now they are watching us, and they're getting to watch our stories. And I believe someday in heaven, I don't know this, the Bible doesn't say for sure, but I believe in heaven, we're going to celebrate every Nikayo. I believe we're going to celebrate every overcomer, every person, and whatever, because you might think, my life's not worthy of a movie. But in heaven, Jesus will tell the story and it'll be incredible, but every Christian who who went through difficult things and instead of giving in or turning around and running, they actually said, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus unto death. And sometimes that doesn't mean physically dying. It could be, mean faithful even unto losing, you know, relationship with a friend. I've heard of people recently who have lost relationship with friends because of you know, what they believe, you know, about Jesus and the Bible and things like that. It could be be faithful unto death, the loss of a job or a career or whatever. Be faithful unto death, the loss of family, whatever it is, but they were faithful. And I believe Jesus is going to celebrate. We have all of eternity. We've got to celebrate some kind of stories. And I believe we're going to celebrate all the Nikaios, every Christian who overcame something. You're not alone in that. And so there's this great cloud of witnesses watching us and cheering us on. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This life is so short. Don't get bogged down in how bad your life is right now. No matter how bad it is and the Holy Spirit feels with you and we feel for you. But remember that no matter how bad it is, this life is short. And at the end, those who are faithful, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And we could go through story after story after story after story after story. And many of them haven't even been told of Christians who did not get healed and did not get rescued. Christians who lived short lives and Christians lived, who lived long lives but who lived hard lives, whether for short or for long. And since we are surrounded by that, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Each of us has a race to run. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. By the way, does Jesus have a right to say be faithful unto death? I think he's earned the right because he did it first. He said, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done. I'm not asking you to be faithful unto death, but I'm not, I'm not willing to walk that walk first. He came here and said, I'm willing to walk the walk. And he walked the walk. He was faithful to death. And then he says to us, be faithful unto death or unto the loss of whatever things will constitute death for you who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is what actually Revelation 4 is all about. Because the call of Revelation 1 to 3 is, be faithful unto death, Nikaiō, overcome. But it's very difficult to overcome when your perspective is wrong. Your perspective, if it's wrong, will weaken you. Your perspective, if you constantly see yourself as puny and evil as really big and you see the evil in our culture and you see the evil in some of your relationships maybe or your family and you don't know what to deal with and it just seems so overwhelming, as long as you view yourself as puny and the evil is so big, you want to give in. And so the truth of Revelation 4 is something we actually need to meditate on and grab hold of, which is Revelation 4 pulls back the curtain of evil and shows us, as I said before, this greater reality, which is, yes, evil might be bigger than you, but there's something even bigger than evil. The throne of God is above it all. And he is sovereign. And we need to recall that perspective regularly and often and meditate on it. Heaven is a real place and there is a throne there, and God is on his throne. And it's not far from here. In this vision, we see God on his throne, and he is watching the things of earth. He is ruling over earth. He is ruling over the universe. Now, so this chapter is supposed to inspire us. It's supposed to encourage us. Now, some of you no doubt read this chapter this last week or have read it recently. Many of you, have heard, have been reading in the book of Revelation because of this series, and then you're kind of reading along doing stuff. Which is great. And so I'm telling you this now and getting you all pumped up. Yes, Revelation 4 gives us this vision and we can overcome. And then you're remembering back to your devotion time and you're saying, I read Revelation 4, though, and I wasn't really encouraged. Actually, it was just weird. (coughs) Can you empathize with that? Because there's all kinds of, like, how is this encouraging? There's jewels and elders and these pardon the, the adjective, but freakish creatures with animal faces and eyes all over their wings and around the back of their head. And so a lot of Christians get hung up on that and they don't get to what the passage is trying to encourage us to hold on and overcome to the end. So I want to, we're going to come back to who God is because that's the most important part of this chapter. But I just want to get through three hurdles. The jewels, the elders, the creatures. So let's explain what those are. Let's look at what they are, the jewels, the elders, and the creatures. And then once once you understand what John, John's just trying to communicate. He's not trying to be weird. He's just trying to communicate, especially he's trying to communicate things that are very difficult to describe. And once we get through a little bit of what those things are and what they mean, then we're going to see that the throne room of God is really a wonderful place to start with our worship. So let's start with the jewels, all right? Once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seat on the throne. By the way, notice there, John throughout this chapter, uh, like, a, like a respectful Jewish person, he does not want to he doesn't even, doesn't even want to say the word of God. The word God, I should say. Uh, he has had a vision and there's lots of parallels, by the way, in your devotions if you want to do some homework. Revelation 4, and we're going to see a bunch of Ezekiel 1, but Revelation 4 is deeply, deeply rooted in Ezekiel chapter 1 deeply rooted and and we'll see some of that but anyway he's seeing what ezekiel saw he's been brought into the throne room of god and he's seen and he's just so blown away and he's so respectful he doesn't want to say the name of god he doesn't want to say yahweh he doesn't even want to say the word god so just throughout this chapter he's going to avoid saying god so he just says and i saw i was in the spirit behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and then we get into the jewels and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So this is the one on the throne. This is God himself. This is Yahweh. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, again, the moment, like I've seen people just draw this. So let's just draw a Jasper and a Carnelian. Let's draw a rainbow. And you you end up with this picture that is, it's, it's cartoonish and it's bizarre. And a lot of people have a bizarre picture of heaven as a result of this chapter, but it's because of reading it in a wrong way, okay? So first of all, Jasper and cornelian. what do they look like? Let's just look at that. Uh, Jasper, there's a Jasper. It can come in different color tones too, but it generally tends to be in the reddish and yellowish and browns, okay? So Jasper, the one sitting on the throne is like Jasper. So what's going on? Does God look like a rock? Absolutely not, Okay? Is he just, the point is, and I think this is a really important thing, when you're reading these jewels, by the way, you will read some commentaries, not most, only some, where commentators will go into all kinds of detail and they'll do word searches on Jasper. And it can be very fun to do. They'll go through the Bible and this is what Jasper means and and whatever. They'll come up with all kinds of stuff. Jasper stands for the atonement and Carnelian stands for new life and all these kinds of things, different things. And they'll do word searches. I'll just tell you now. Those kinds of word studies trying to make these jewels mean things are very, very speculative. They, are, they can be fun to do. You're not going to lose your faith. It's not false teaching, nothing like that. They're incredibly speculative. Very, very speculative. I really don't believe, I, if John wanted us to learn things about salvation through these jewels, I think he would have said something. And whenever he has symbols he wants us really to know about in Revelation, he just explains them. I'll tell you what I think these jewels are. I think these jewels are John trying to describe something that is blowing his mind. He's seeing color like he's never seen color before. Think about that. He's in the throne room of God. He's not just seeing color. The colors are almost alive. He sees God and he's bright. He's radiating everything. His senses are alive. He's not, and he has to liken, I mean, everything is the appearance. He was sat there, had the appearance, right, and the appearance of an emerald. He's trying to bring something that is beyond into our experience. So he doesn't, he can't just say he was kind of reddish, and he's not going to compare God to something cheap like tin or, you know, some kind of whatever. I don't know what he would would use. So he's going to use costly jewels. It just makes sense. So there's this reddish idea, and, and people have noticed too that many of the, the uh, jewels are part of the, priest, the priestly covering in the Old Testament, and I, and I don't doubt that that is significant in some way, but again, it gets very speculative when you try to build all kinds of other things. There's a carnelian kind of in the same color tones, but again, the point is John is seeing these colors are coming alive, he's seeing things he can't describe. So the point is not, don't make this a cartoon, don't take these things so literally that you make a bizarre picture that makes you not want to go to heaven. Okay. The point is that this, this is awesome. Okay? And that's why he's using these things. Okay, So there's, there's Jasper and Carnelian, but God doesn't look like a rock. Now let's zip over to Ezekiel 1 and we're going to see some of these same things. Okay, Just for a moment. And we'll jump way down into the vision. Verse 26, Ezekiel is in the throne room as well. And above the expanse over their heads, he's speaking of some of the creatures. There's very similar creatures in Ezekiel as in Revelation, and we'll get to that later. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Notice the words likeness, appearance. The likeness of a throne, an appearance like a sapphire. A sapphire is in the blues usually. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. Again, notice Ezekiel. He, he doesn't even know totally what he's seeing. So he's, he's using likeness, appearance, to try to, analogies, trying to bring it back to earth. And then he says, uh, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, as it were, a gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Then he says this, verse 28, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So again, a rainbow. So both of them. But again, don't think of just a cartoon rainbow going around circling the throne for some reason. Think again. You know, any of you on a, you know, you know there's those moments where, you know, and, and they're rare, but you just, like there's times you see rainbows, but they're a little fuzzy. That's usually. There's occasionally these moments, you know, right after a storm in the dark, you know, maybe it's in the morning or in the evening. You get those really dark clouds as a background, but the sun is bright above you and then you get like a really, really, really clear, bright rainbow, and they are spectacular. All the the colors are there. This is how John and Ezekiel, in the throne of God, the colors and their senses are so alive. It's like a a rainbow. The air itself almost is like a rainbow. Okay, this is beyond. The, The point of this isn't to make this into a cartoon. We can't describe it. The point is we're supposed to be in awe of the absolute beauty and majesty, that this is completely other than anything we've ever experienced here on earth. Such was the appearance, Ezekiel says, lastly, of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Okay, in English, we just have it as the Lord, but in Hebrew, it's the name of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Okay, so that's the jewels. So the jewels are just, they're they're tools for Ezekiel and John to try to describe a colorful, Sensory blowing beauty in this throne room. Okay, let me get to the 24 elders. What are the 24 elders? And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's been lots of speculation, uh, lots and lots of speculation as to who these 24 elders are. So, and and I mean, there's some interesting stuff out there. So, some people have speculated. Some of the emperors, some of the Roman emperors had, would have 24 guards. They a, and there was a name for them, I forget, but they had these special guards that were just for the emperor. There were 24 of them. They wore these special outfits and they were really imposing. Um, and some people speculated this is kind of a cultural kind of thing showing, you know, the Christians in John's day that God is the emperor of the universe. And, and I don't even doubt there could be some real truth in that. There could be some real cultural relevance. I, I like reading stuff like that, but we just really don't know. I think, think, but I think, again, we have to go back to Revelation 4 is tied to Revelation 2 and 3. It's supposed to encourage us. So, and I think there's a better answer, and it's in the book of Revelation itself. See, the book of Revelation, the number 24, is really important in the book of Revelation. And I'll show you an example of that. If we we fast-forward to the end... Revelation chapter 21, God, uh, John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and we're going to find this number 24 in a way that is very relevant to what is happening in God's throne. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like jasper, so now you know what jasper looks like. Clear as crystal, so it's going to be awesome. Awesome. Now, verse twelve. Now we're going to get twelve and twelve. And for those of you who are mathematically challenged, twelve plus twelve is twenty-four. Okay, but let's see what this, these twelve plus twelve are. All right, verse twelve, and in verse twelve, no less. Can it be a coincidence? I'm sure it is, actually. But anyway, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So, this new Jerusalem, John sees twelve gates. Three gates on the, on the north side, three gates on the west, three, you know, three gates on the south, three gates on the east. And over top of each gate is a unique name, one of the names of the tribes of Israel, one of the names of Jacob's sons. So you've got a gate, Levi, the Levi gate, and you've got a gate, the Judah gate, and the Benjamin gate, and the Dan gate, and the Manasseh and the Ephraim. You've got all the gates. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel, remembered and, and uh, memorialized for all of eternal, all of eternity. Well, that makes sense, okay? That, I mean, that's just straight out of the Bible. That just, that just makes sense. That has a, uh, you know, that, so it's some kind of a poetic thing there, okay? So anyway, verse, let me skip over verse 14, or 13, and we get to verse 14. We find there's not just names over the gates. There's also somehow twelve foundations under this city wall, and here we find what they are. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb." So here we have 24 names. we got the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we got the names of the 12 apostles. By the way, something had had never crossed my mind before, and I've read this passage how many times, but that I have been asked repeatedly since last night. So no doubt some of you are asking it right now is the question, is Judas one of the names on the 12 foundations? Never thought of that before. My guess would be no. I, my guess would be the 12th name must be uh, Acts chapter 1. You know, they got a disciple to replace Judas, uh, Matthias, I think his name was. But anyway, that would be my guess. I don't know. Okay? But anyway, you got the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 apostles on the foundations. And you say, now, what is the relevance to that, to us? And how does that tie into Revelation 2 and 3? And how does that encourage us? I'll tell you how it does. In these 24 names, you have the representatives of God's people. In the Old and New Testament, don't you? You have the nation of Israel represented, and then who are the 12 apostles? The foundation of who? The church. That's us. That's us. Jesus said, I came to build my church. He sent the disciples up with the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. The 12 tribes of Israel give us the nation of Israel, and the 12 apostles give us the church. And so what I really believe is these 24 elders... I believe this is is deep symbolism. Who is in the throne room of God? Who is represented there? We have the nation of Israel and the church brought together before God. And this is an encouragement to us because in Revelation 2 and 3, God has said, be faithful unto death. And then we see this throne room. And who is represented before God's throne at all times is the church and Israel. I know many questions Come out of that sometimes, people always have this question, and I always answer it, and I answer it the same way, and it's important that we know it. There's no question that the nation of Israel is special in God's plan. But people, when I talk about Israel and the church, uh, people ask the question, are you saying that, you know, a Jewish person is saved just by being a Jew? And the answer is no. That was Paul's big thing in all of his writings. There is only one way to be saved on earth, whether you are a Jew. Whether you are a Gentile, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Canadian, whether you are a Jew, a European, a Mexican, or whoever, doesn't matter, there is only one way to be saved, and that is by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, and that includes for the Jewish people, they're, the same, they're saved the same way we are, through Jesus, okay? So that's really important, and there will be many Jews, uh, which is sad, but it's sad just like any other nation, there will be many Jews not in heaven, I mean, this book is a book written by Jews almost entirely, and it is a book full of stories about Jewish people almost entirely. The good guys and the bad guys in this book are usually Jewish because it's a Jewish book. And so there's many examples of Jewish people, for example, in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament as well, who are not going to be in heaven. You're not saved just by being a Jew. Having said that, God made covenants with the Jewish people, and the church has now been grafted into those covenants. Paul says we should actually love the Jewish people because we we have now been brought in to share in their covenants. And there are special promises to the Jewish people that are made to no other nation. For example, no other nation has this promise that, that at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, I shouldn't say the end of time, time will continue. That's another discussion when we get to Revelation 10. Trust me, there is time in heaven. I know there's a song that says there isn't. It's based on a wrong KJV translation of a verse. We don't need to go there. In chapter 10, we will get there. Um, I should just say this. How could there be music in heaven if there's no time? But anyway. (laughs) Where was I? Uh, Israel. So God made a promise. There's a promise, not at the end of time, but at the end of this age when Jesus comes back. That every Jew who is alive at that time, not every Jew from all time, many Jews have died without Jesus up to this point. That's sad. Just like any other nation. But Jesus is working history in such a way that he is going to come back at the exact right moment that all the Jewish people who are left are going to willingly give their lives to Jesus and the whole nation will be saved. That event is prophesied many times in the Old Testament and is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11. So the Jewish people, it's still special, but they have to be saved by Jesus, just like anyone else. Anyway, my point is, so people ask, who are these 24 elders around the throne? Okay, so you're saying the 24 elders are Jacob's 12 sons and 12 apostles. Okay, this is where we have to go, you know what, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation 4. First of all, So the 24 represent, they are symbolic of the fact that the nation of Israel and the church are always before God's throne. That's what they mean. So now when you say, well, are those 24 guys the actual guys from the Bible? You know, Judah and and Issachar and Dan and Peter and all this sort of thing. And people want to see, "Can I?" are those guys always in the throne room of God? And, And the answer is, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do with it. I think it's just symbolic of Israel and the church are in the throne room. And the reason I think it's symbolic, I have a couple of reasons. First of all... Have you read the stories recently of Jacob's boys? I have questions. I'm not certain that they're all going to be in heaven. I know their tribes will live on forever. But I have questions. Were they all saints? I'm not sure. They certainly weren't, didn't live like saints. Okay? But even bigger than that, and this is the more important thing that I really wanted to get to. The idea that there are 24 actual people who will just be in the throne room of God singing for all of eternity and throwing their crowns down is a misconception about heaven. And it comes from taking a snapshot of heaven. So Revelation 4 is a snapshot of heaven with a lot of symbolism. It's a snapshot of heaven with symbolism. And people have looked at that chapter, and this is why a lot of people really don't look forward to going to heaven. They just dread going to hell, so they'd rather go there. But we look at Revelation 4, and I've heard preachers and read commentaries about how we're going to be in the throne room forever and ever just singing and singing and singing. I'm going to tell you right now, we are not just going to be in the throne room singing and singing and singing and singing. And let me explain why I believe that to be true. First of all, imagine that this morning during the worship, we took a video recording. Ten minutes, people worshiping. Oh, it's wonderful to worship God. And Zach and the team did such a great job leading. I just love it. And we're singing and raising our hands and loving Jesus. It's one of these wonderful moments. We take a 10-minute DVD, put it into a special case, put it on a rocket, and shoot it out into space, okay? And we send it out to some alien planet out there. By the way, I do not believe in aliens. (laughs) Don't build a doctrine off that. But we shoot this thing out and say there were aliens. We shoot this rocket with a DVD, and that's all it has on there. It doesn't have any video of us eating, or playing, or building, or working, or gathering food. It's just us singing. It's just a snapshot. Now, these aliens open it up, and they're like, oh, this happens to be compatible with our DVD players, and they pop it in, (laughs) right? So pop it in. We watch this 10-minute thing. Do they have even a tiny clue of what life on Earth is like? They have a snapshot of just one tiny piece. They have a 10-minute snapshot of something we do every week, which we love, which is to worship the Lord. But they are missing out on 99%. If, If you want to know what life on earth is like, you would have to take a lot longer video of a lot more different things. In the same way, Revelation chapter 4, there is no way God wants us only to sing for all of eternity. If he only wanted us to sing, why did he give us taste buds so we can taste? and hands so that we can write and build and work, and legs and feet so that we can run and exercise and play. Why did he give us brains that can do so much? If anybody here on earth only spent all their time praying and singing, that would actually not be... Some people, sometimes we think, the more you pray, the more spiritual you are. You need to pray. Being prayerless is to lose some of your humanness and that you're not connected to Jesus. But to think that it is more spiritual to pray all the time is not to be more spiritual, it is to be less human. God did not make you just to pray and sing. He made you in his image and he made you to work and play and have relationships and rest. There are all these cycles of what we do and, you know, for some of us to raise children and, and to, to explore And all these different personalities, all these different things, and to gather food and to invent, all of these things are what make us in the image of God. They are what make us human. And when we go to heaven, we are not, well, heaven, even that, I have to be careful, because we're not just going up to this place to float. God's throne is coming down here, but we are not going to be less human in heaven. We are going to be more human. We are going to be ultimately the humans he made us to be, which is in his image. We are going to create more than we ever have before. We are going to relate more than we ever have before. We're going to rest better than we ever have before, but we're also going to work better than we ever have before. We're going to engineer and write, and we're still going to have different personalities, and I really believe there's going to be different people good at different things because we're human, not God, and he doesn't want, he's not making us gods. He's making, he made us human in his image, and he loves the variety and the diversity, So the point of Revelation 4 is not to tell us this is all of life in heaven and there's actually going to be some people in my throne room for all of eternity that all they do is throw the crowns down and say worthy, worthy, worthy. No. We are going to worship. I'm not putting down worship. Oh, we're going to worship. And we're all going to sing. And it's going to be amazing. And none of us, might I add, even though it's okay if you do it here. And don't even feel guilty if you do. Because there's lots of things I don't do, you know, like I'm going to do in heaven. Maybe I'll even dance in heaven, but I don't do that here, okay? (laughs) But nobody in heaven is going to do this in worship, okay? They just won't. Impossible. So we will worship. We're going to do a lot more in worship. So the point of Revelation 4 is not to say this is what life in heaven is like. God himself would be bored with a life that all we do is do the same thing over and over and over. So, Revelation 4 is a snapshot of the throne room not for the purpose of telling us what all of life in heaven is like it is to encourage us that God is on his throne and he is sovereign and the church and Israel are always precious before his eyes so that we can do what we're told to do in Revelation 2 and 3 which is nikaio overcome be faithful unto death even when things are hard and this brings us to the creatures So, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And these things, it just seems, they seem so weird. And it seems so random, right? So, full of eyes in front and behind. I mean, right, that's the nightmares you had about your mother growing up, right? How does she see? (laughs) The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, why those four? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within, so they have eyes even over their wings. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Well, again, this is deeply, deeply rooted in Ezekiel 1, so I'll just go there and then I'll explain this and we'll, we'll bring this message to an end, but Ezekiel One, as I, Ezekiel, looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. What he means is they had human torsos. So he had a human torso with two arms and hands. Then he goes on, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Now, this is an interesting difference. It's interesting to note that these visions are very similar and then different in just a couple of little things, which makes them just kind of interesting. I don't know why. But in Revelation, you've got four creatures. Each of them has one face. So you have one with a human face, one with a lion, one with an ox, one with an eagle. Uh, in Ezekiel, you have four creatures, but each of the four has four faces. But the same creatures, lion, ox, human, eagle. Okay? That's what we see. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left. And the face of an eagle, and then, of course, the face of the, of the human on the front. And again, the question is, so why? Why, why, why? And there's a couple different options. First of all, we could take these creatures to be actual creatures that God has made that are always in his throne room. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. I just really don't think that's the point, and I don't think it's encouraging. Now, I don't know. I haven't been to heaven. So if they are real creatures, I'm sure when we actually see them, they won't be bizarre or weird. But from where I'm standing right now, they really sound freakish with all the eyes and everything and the four faces and the the animal faces. So I don't think the point is that these are actual creatures that are in God's throne room. But I'm okay with being wrong. When we get to heaven and you can laugh at me, ha ha ha, you got it wrong. And I'll go, yes, isn't it great to be here? Um, (laughs) Right? So, but I really do not believe they're, they're real creatures. I don't believe that's the point. I believe they're representative of something. You say, well, what on earth are they representative of? It just seems odd, like random. Why these creatures? Well, the thing you have to understand is that our thinking about animals today is very different than 2,000 years ago in Bible times. Very, very different. Okay? We, our relationship with animals and their relationship with animals is as different as night and day. So, for example, we keep animals as Pets. And not just cats and dogs, we keep animals as pets that back then they would never have imagined that people would want to keep as pets. I mean, you can go to the pet store today and you can, you can find rabbits and guinea pigs, but not just rabbits and guinea pigs, but you can find rabbits and guinea pigs without hair. <laughs> I'm just keeping my mouth shut. I'm just keeping it shut. I mean, you can find mice. I mean, your own grandmother and great-grandmother would have been horrified to know that you were spending money to feed mice in your home. (laughs) Am I not correct? And rats. (laughs) And reptiles. And all kinds of things. So we view animals as pets. And the other thing is, we have a very interesting relationship with, with animals now that has never been true in human history, is as human beings, we now view ourselves as protectors of animals. So constantly, we're trying to save various animals. We're trying to save the polar bears. We're trying to save the tigers. We're trying to save the lions. And by the way, all of that, I affirm, God's wonderful creatures. I don't want tigers and lions and polar bears. Interestingly for me, it's all the, the nasty ones that I would hate to see go extinct, okay? A lot of the deer, really? Canada geese, you know, I'd love for them to get closer to the endangered list. But anyway, um, <laughs> nonetheless, I digress. But anyway, But we want to create, and I love that. You know, I love that people want to conserve these animals because they are part of God's creation, and they're beautiful. They're amazing. We we lose something when some of these creatures go extinct. But nonetheless, 2,000 years ago, nobody could have imagined a time when human beings would want to save lions and tigers and wolves and bears. They would not have imagined that, because 2,000 years ago, these animals they killed people and they killed livestock. So they were afraid of these animals. They wanted to get rid of these animals, okay? So back in those days, nowadays, we love to study animals, and there's whole TV channels about animals, and so we love animals. Back then, they had a much more simplistic relationship to animals, and basically, you could could divide animals up into basic three categories when you think of ancient thought. So on one hand, you had wild animals, and wild animals, your your lions, your wolves, your bears, snakes, These were animals that you generally feared, or like rats and things, you feared in a different way, not that they would attack you on the side of the road, but they would eat your crops and stuff. Wild animals were something you detested and feared and you were against. And then you had another group of animals, which is very important to them, that we just don't have a relationship like this with animals anymore. You had domestic animals, right? Now, we still eat animals, but for the most part, we don't rely on animals for our livelihoods anymore. But back then, they not only, they had, so they had wild animals, which they were afraid of, then they had domestic animals, which they relied on. Like you needed mules and donkeys to carry stuff and transport stuff. You needed sheep and goats for milk and meat and wool. You needed oxen to break up the ground so you could plant your crops. You needed these, you depended on these animals. So on the one hand, you've got wild animals you're scared of, and then you've got domestic animals that you absolutely need and depend on, and then you've got birds. Now, some of you, uh, I mean, birds are just their own thing because they fly, right? So everybody thinks they're cool. But anyway, uh, so you have these three groups. Now, you, some of you might be thinking, you're just, you're just making this up. And uh, I'm not making this up. Uh, you can look at writings from ancient times that actually talk about this stuff. So here's an example. This is Rabbi Abihu writing circa 300 AD, a couple hundred years after the New Testament was written. Look what he writes. There are four mighty creatures. The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among the wild animals is the lion. The mightiest of them all is man. And God has taken all these and secured them to his throne. Point is, the way the Jewish people saw it, when they see these four faces, the man, the ox, the lion, and the eagle, what they're seeing there is a representative What it represents is all of the creatures, all of God's creatures, in God's throne room, all of God's creatures are giving him glory. They were all made for his glory. And from the smallest to the biggest, all of God's creatures give him glory. You've got the nation of it in the elders. We have the nation of Israel in the church. In these creatures, we have all the creatures that God has ever made. Give him glory in his throne room and will give him glory for all of eternity in his throne room. They were made for him. And the eyes simply suggest that from God's throne room everything is seen, nothing is missed. Everything. He sits in his throne room and nothing in his throne room, nothing on earth is missed from our motives to our actions to the actions of evil, nothing is missed. From the throne room, everything is seen and all God's creatures give him glory. And that brings us to the most important part of this chapter which is once you get through these hurdles of the the jewels and the elders and the creatures. And we can actually just pay attention to what they're saying, which is the part that's supposed to encourage us so much. And that is this. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say. And there's two really important parts. Holy, holy, holy. First of all, this does not just mean righteous and good and pure. It does mean that. But it means much more than that. Holy means utterly other than, transcendent more magnificent than any mountain or waterfall or canyon or ocean. They're in the throne room of God and God is so utterly other than, transcendent, awesome and beyond. Holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This throne, God has been on his throne before human history, throughout human history, and for all of eternity, he will always be sovereign. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, I want you to be faithful unto death. In Revelation 4, he encouraged us, see, who was it when the Christians who John was writing to there in the, in the first and second centuries, who was it that was, who was the evil presence that was scaring them back then? It was the Roman Empire. You know, 20, 30 years before Revelation was written, Nero was taking live Christians, putting them on stakes, And using them, burning them alive as human torches to light his gardens. Horrific. In a time when Revelation is getting written, Domitian is is making horrific persecutions, torture, and purges of Christians in Rome and in the empire. So now Jesus says to them, Be faithful unto death. In other words, even if it gets that bad, be faithful to me and I will reward you. And they're going, Oh my goodness. This Roman Empire just looks so bad. But then we see all the creatures in God's throne room. And they're seeing the God who's been on the throne before the Roman Empire, during the Roman Empire. And here we are 2,000 years later. Where is the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire has come and gone. They woke up every morning afraid of the Roman Empire. We we wake up now and none of us wakes up afraid of the Roman Empire. And in the 2,000 years since, how many evil tyrants and evil... Empires and evil cultures and evil whatever have come and gone. I mean we could not in the time we have here today, we could not even begin to name even a small fraction of them. But some of the most famous one, Genghis Khan and the and the Mongols, have come and gone. They terrified a big chunk of the world for a long, long time. They've come and gone. If we come much closer to our time now, World War I and World War II have come and gone. Adolf Hitler has come and gone, Joseph Stalin has come and gone. If we get even closer, Osama bin Laden, not nearly on their scale in terms of influence, but he has come and gone. They've all come and gone. They've terrified people and they've come and gone. And one person remains on the throne, the one who is, or who was, and who is, and who is to come. No matter what pressure you are facing today, and there are pressures in our culture now that are evil. And they are pushing on us more and more. And sometimes it just feels like, oh my goodness, they're too big for us. It's at that moment so we remember that a thousand years from now, quite sure we'll be, you know, heaven will be here on earth by then. But whatever the case, a thousand years from now, a hundred years from now, they will have come and gone. But God will still be on his throne. Amen. And that's why we can be faithful unto death. Why don't you bow your hands with me and close your eyes? And let's give worship in this prayer and in our final song. Let's give worship to the one who is on the throne. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Our struggles here on earth are so small compared to how big you are. We willingly serve you. We willingly sacrifice for you because you are worthy of it all. You call us to be faithful unto death, and we will do so. Receive our worship here from this church this morning. We thank you for being who you are. In your precious name, we pray. Amen.